You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. read together verses 30 through 38 of John 8, beginning of verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. Let's pray together. Our God, we come to you, and it is our desire to know your word, to love your word, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold in your word wonderful things. Convict us and encourage us and exhort us in your word, we pray. Spirit of God, be our teacher and may your glory be our concern. and May your word be our guide this morning in Christ's name. Amen. John 8 verse 33 says, you will know the truth. There's 32, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. We come now to one of these passages in the gospel of John which has a solidly familiar ring to it. It is one of those verses that is so familiar to us that you can probably recite those words off the top of your memory, and yet you probably don't ever remember a time in your life when you memorize those words. Is that not true? I never remember sitting down and memorizing that passage, but I know it. Why is it that I know it? Because those are the type of words that you find on every coffee cup and calendar and trinket and bookmark and pillowcase that you could ever market to Christians, and the truth is, we buy those things, right? And so we were constantly walking by Christian paraphernalia, which has verses like that on there, and you read it over and over again, and you come to understand that you know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It is almost ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's one of those phrases that's everywhere. I've even heard that phrase used, or I should say misused, in a political sense. Have you heard this? Somebody said, we need to know the truth because the truth will make us, as Americans, free. And the idea is you need to know the truth about the left or the socialists, or the communists, or the radicals, or whatever it is. Because in knowing the truth, we will preserve our freedom. I've heard it used that way. Please don't ever use this verse that way. It should be obvious even to the most casual observer that Jesus is not talking about political freedom. He is not talking about physical freedom. He is not talking about knowing the truth about a hundred things under the sun. There is a very narrow focus to this verse, a very narrow meaning to this verse, Jesus is not talking about physical freedom or political freedom or national freedom. He is talking about spiritual freedom. And there are certain truths that we are to come to know as his sheep, that when we come to know these truths, these truths liberate us. Not as a nation and not as a political system, but they liberate us from sin. And that is what John 8 is all about. We have been seeing that John 8 is Jesus' promise that as the light of the world, he will deliver from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the prince of sin, any and all who will come and place their faith in him. So this promise for freedom is a promise for freedom from sin. 
And we are delivered by the truth, and it is the truth that sets us free. Now, when we become overly familiar with a passage of Scripture, a verse of Scripture like this one, there can be some positive benefits of being overly familiar with it and also some negative aspects of being overly familiar with it. You say, how is it possible, how can it be a negative thing to be overly familiar with the text of Scripture? Sometimes we are overly familiar with a passage of Scripture because we have heard it quoted out of its context so much and misapplied so much that when we finally look at it in its context, we realize, I, I never knew what this passage meant to begin with because I've heard it misused and abused so often. And sometimes our over-familiarization with passages of Scripture can actually numb us to the true meaning. We become almost blinded to what they mean. And we hear them and we read them and we say them so much that after a period of time we say, I know what that verse means. This is how I use it. This is how I understand it. And we almost come apathetic toward its meaning. On the positive side, it is possible that having become so familiar with it that we get the benefit of when we plug it back into its original context, we see things in there that we've never seen before. You ever had that happen? You look at a passage that you think you've seen and known and memorized your entire life, you plug it into its original context and you scratch a little bit deeper than the surface and you say to yourself, I never saw that before. I never realized that that was the case. I never saw that level of meaning in there. Wow, that is profound. I never knew that that's what that passage meant. It is my hope that today with this very familiar passage of Scripture, these words of Jesus, that we will all come to that kind of a conclusion. We'll all say, wow, I never saw that. I saw that on a coffee mug, but I had no idea what that was referring to. So let's jump in at chapter 8, verse 32 and 33. I will remind you that that phrase in verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free, that is the last half of a sentence that we looked, started looking at the first half last week. Jesus is actually in these words speaking to Jews who had come to believe in Him. But believe in Him after a fashion. As we've seen the last couple of weeks, it wasn't true saving faith, was it? It was not the type of saving faith that really caused regeneration and delivered them from darkness because Jesus goes on in the passage in the rest of chapter 8 to reveal the true condition of their heart. He gives them some hard teaching which they instantly bristle against. And He lays down the demands of discipleship and their response to His demands unveiled the true murderous intentions of their heart. Their response to His hard teaching and demands showed that their faith, their belief, whatever it was, was only a mask, only a facade that hid their real hostile intentions toward Him, which was murderous. And so Jesus, for the rest of John chapter 8, is saying to those Jews who had believed in Him, here are the demands of discipleship. Here is what a true disciple looks like. You call yourself followers or believers, but here's what's true of a true believer. And then He contrasts this group who had believed with true believers, and in doing so shows that this group who had believed had really not believed savingly upon Him at all. And He's unmasking that heart of unbelief. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, there are three marks of a true disciple. I believe it was two weeks ago I, I challenged you to examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. See if you pass the test. What are the elements of the marks of the test? Well, you could read through First John, which is really a, basically a list of the tests of how do I know if I'm saved or not saved. But here in this passage, verses 31 and 32, there are three marks of a true, genuine believer that are given. Three of them. We looked at one of them last week. A true believer, verse 31, continues in Jesus' word. The mark of a true believer is not somebody who starts in a religious profession. It's not somebody who begins with a bang and a zeal and all kinds of passion and seems teachable and throws themselves into religious affections for a period of time. The true test of genuine discipleship, the true test of regeneration, is does this person continue in Christ's Word? 
through hard times, through easy times, through trials, tribulations, temptations, through suffering, persecution, affliction, hardship, loss, all of the rough stuff, does this person cling to Jesus? And when they do, you realize that they have come to him for the right thing. Because when somebody comes to Christ for all of the wrong things, and suddenly all of those wrong things don't materialize, then they abandon their faith in Christ. But when somebody comes to Christ for forgiveness and eternal life, then when they lose, like Job, everything else, they say, I'm not going to curse him. Why would I turn from him? He has given me eternal life. That's what he promised, and he hasn't abandoned that promise. He's still holding to that promise. So as long as I have eternal life and he has the words of life, I will stick with Christ. So a true disciple is one who continues in his word. And then verse 32 is the next two marks. A true disciple is one who knows the truth. That's number two. He knows the truth and he is free from sin. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. That's the first one. And you will know the truth. That's the second mark of a true believer. And the truth, that truth will set you free. So those are the three marks. Now Jesus knew that these believers, these Jews, did not meet any of those characterizations. None of them. He knew that they would not continue in his word because by the time we get to the end of John chapter 8, what are they doing? These same Jews who believed in him in verse 29 are picking up stones to stone him and to kill him. And he reveals their murderous intention in verse 37. He reveals that they are of their father the devil in verse 44. So they're not continuing with him. Second, Jesus knew that these people did not even know the truth because he calls them liars in verse 55. I know my father, and if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. These were liars. These were people who did not know the truth. They had not embraced the truth. They were still in their nature, just like their father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning. And every time he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, and he is the father of lies, and he is a murderer. That's their, is Jesus' characterization of them. So he knew that they wouldn't continue with him, that they would try and stone him. He knew that they were not believers in the truth and didn't love the truth because they were still of their father the devil, who is a liar. And third, Jesus knew that they would not, they were not set free from the truth. They were still, in fact, slaves of sin. And he reveals that in verse 34. I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. That was his diagnosis of these people. These are the marks of a true believer. He continues in the word of Jesus. He knows the truth. And he is freed, set free by that truth. So we looked at continuance last week. Today we're going to look at those last two marks, being knowing the truth and being set free by the truth. All right? Verse 32. Read it again. Try as you will to read this as if for the very first time. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The first promise, a true disciple, or the first mark for this morning, a true disciple is one who knows the truth. What does it mean to know the truth? Jesus is not speaking of mere intellectual knowledge about the truth or knowing some things that are true. He is speaking about a type of knowledge of the truth which results in one being set free from the, from sin. He's speaking about a kind of knowledge of the truth that changes somebody. Not a, a head knowledge, not a superficial knowledge, not an outward connect a connection to the truth, but a genuine, intimate, loving embrace of the truth which results in somebody being transformed by the truth. Not just coming to know some things about truth, but to come to know the truth in such a way that you are changed by it. That is what it means to know the truth. Have you been radically changed by the truth? Or have you come to know and believe upon Christ, and you are only doing so outwardly, but your life remains the same after Christ as before Christ? That's the issue. Have you been radically altered by coming to know the truth? The whole idea of coming to know the truth is actually a synonym for salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Paul says, We ought to give thanks for you, beloved brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation 
through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Right? Salvation is what? It is believing and putting faith in the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Salvation is coming to a knowledge of the truth. James 1.8 says that you and I have been brought forth in the exercise of God's will by His word of truth. So we are saved in the truth. We have come to know intellectually and embrace the truth and love the truth. And then we have placed our faith in the truth. That is what salvation is. Salvation is not mere outward intellectual knowledge about true things, but it is an embrace of the truth and knowing truth in a way that it changes you. Let me give you an illustration. A man walks up to a wood-burning stove, and he can feel the heat radiating off the stove. And he sees somebody walk up to the wood-burning stove, and he can look inside, and he can see the fire in there, and he sees somebody throw a log in there, and he knows to himself the purpose of a wood-burning stove is to put off heat. And I know that metal is a very good conductor of heat. And I see the fire in there, I see wood going in there, I feel the heat radiating off of it. I know that the surface of that stove is hot. He knows that. A second man walks up to the stove and he sees the man open up the door, he can see the fire inside, he sees the man throw the log inside of the stove, he knows that metal is a very good conductor and the purpose of a wood-burning stove is to be very, very hot. And the man seizes the wood-burning stove and it scalds and blisters the inside of his hand. Now both of those men know that the stove is hot, right? But they know that the stove is hot in two entirely different fashions. One man's knowledge is a mere intellectual knowledge. The second man, he knows it because he has been altered by that truth. He has been changed by that truth. He has experienced truth. That is what salvation is. Salvation is not knowing about Jesus. It is grabbing hold of Jesus and being radically altered by it. And to know by experience that this is true. That is what it means to know the truth. These men, these believers in John 8, did not know the truth. They had a mental assessment of it, and they believed certain things about Jesus were true. That's the man who walks up to the stove but never touches it. A true disciple is one who, having embraced that truth, has been radically altered by that experience. Right? Now, my analogy breaks down, obviously, and you know why? Because the man who grabs that stove will never do it again. Whereas with Jesus, we do this over and over again, right? We embrace the truth and we love the truth. Every analogy limps, and mine limps a little bit, but ignore that part. Just understand, there are two different types of knowledge. Knowledge that brings salvation is a knowledge that has been embraced and seared by the truth and radically changed by the truth. These disciples had not been. That is what true salvation is, being changed by it. I want you to notice an implication of what Jesus is saying. The implication of what he is saying is that truth is actually knowable. You catch that? We live in a day when we are bombarded by on every side, from every possible source, with the lie that truth cannot be known. That truth cannot be known. You can't know anything for sure. And it's even embraced by many churches and by many leaders of churches. In fact, this is the whole point of the, the emergent church movement. This was their whole cardinal doctrine of the emergent church movement. You can't know anything for sure. You can't know anything for sure. And, and they thought that ignorance of the truth was the mark of humility. And that we're all in our own little narrative, sort of bumbling and stumbling blindly through life. And the Bible's a big mystery. And who can really know what God is like? And who can really know what's true? And we're all just sort of blind, like blind men stumbling around trying to find it. And you got your truth and I got my truth. And we all kind of stumble upon little elements of the truth. But who really knows on this side of heaven what true truth is? That's the mindset of our day. People think that that is the mark of humility. You know what it is? It is the mark of the height of hubris. When Jesus says that the truth can be known and that his disciples will know the truth, it is arrogance for you and I to say 
that that is arrogance. That Jesus was arrogant and that we can't know the truth. That is false humility at its worst. You and I can know the truth. We can reach out and embrace it. We can know it intellectually. We can know it experientially. We can be changed, radically changed by the truth. And we can say to anybody else, you may live in a fog. You may live in a spiritual no man's land. But I'm here to tell you that I know what the truth is because Jesus said the truth can be known. It can be known and it can radically change you. We don't have to live in some sort of a postmodern fog. Now, what truth is it? that Jesus is speaking of, because that's important, right? It's not just all truth. Just because I know that 2 plus 2 is 4 doesn't mean I'm going to be radically changed by it, nor does it mean that I'm going to be set free spiritually. So what truth is Jesus referring to when he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free? We can speak in very general and broad terms and say that you and I have come to know everything that is true. Everything that God intends for us to know, and everything that God has revealed to us that is true, you and I can find in His revelation of Scripture. So broadly speaking, the mind of God is revealed on every subject on which God has willed to reveal His mind, and it is written down in a book. Actually, one collection of 66 books. And because of that, you and I can know the mind of God on every subject where the mind of God touches something down here. And we can see it, it's revealed in Scripture. So we know all of truth. But does that mean that you and I know everything that there is to know about truth from the moment that we get saved? Or does that mean that you and I must come to know everything that's true before we can be truly free? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, you will know as my disciple everything that there is to know. Because I don't know if you have reached this point yet or not, but I have not yet come to know everything that there is to know. And there are some things that are true that God has not revealed in the pages of Scripture, that is not for us to know. So Jesus is not saying that we will know everything there is to know, or that we will know all truth, but he is saying this. As his disciple, the truth will no longer be veiled to you. You will come into a state and a place where you know and see the truth. And you apprehend it, and you know that it is true truth, and you love it, and you embrace it, and you have affection for it, and you desire to obey it, and you know it intellectually, and you are changed by it. And all the truth that is necessary for you to be set free, you will know as his disciple. So somebody comes up to you and says, well, I'm just not sure about any of these things that you claim to be true. That person is not a disciple or a follower of Christ. They haven't been changed by it, because his disciples know the truth. And when the truth is put out in front of them, those who are his sheep love it, embrace it, and respond to it. And they love and embrace that truth because they have been promised that they will know the truth. So it is everything that is necessary to set us free. That is the truth that you and I have come to know. And we have come to know that truth and embrace that truth. We could also say that the truth that you and I have, are, are, that you and I must come to know to set us free really could be classified into three different categories. And I'll break that down a little bit more specifically. Generally, we know that everything that's necessary to set us free. But what does that mean specifically? It means this. You and I have come to know, if you're a believer, you have come to know the truth about Jesus Christ, who is the truth, right? Ephesians 4, 21, the truth is in Jesus. The beginning of John's Gospel, John told us the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So He is the truth. And His disciples come to know Him. And we come to know that He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life. He is the Word of God incarnate. Uh, And by His truth we are sanctified. He is the Word of truth. He is truth. He spoke truth. Everything He did, did was true. He is truth personified. Everything about Him is true truth. And to know Christ is to know the truth. So generally speaking, we say that we know the Son, who is truth. We'd also have to say that we have come to know a lot about the Father that is truth. Right? 
We have come to know that God is holy. Those who are his disciples have come to know that God is righteous and what God's demands are and that he is just and that there is a heaven and that there is a hell and that God is a judge and that those who have violated his law deserve to be condemned to an eternal hell for their rebellion against him. We've come to know that. We've come to understand truth about justice, truth about the love of God and the love of Christ. We've come to understand the truth about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, his ascension to heaven, about repentance and faith and God's remedy for sinners. We've come to know all of that truth. That's the truth that sets men free. We've also come to know the truth about ourselves, right? We've come to see ourselves as we truly are in God's eyes. Not as we like to see ourselves. That's radically different. You realize that? The way you like to see yourself is radically different than how God sees you. If you've come to salvation in Christ, then you have come to see yourself the way that God sees you in truth. As a lawbreaker. As somebody who is, is morally corrupt, morally depraved, absolutely depraved and hopeless and helpless and unable to remedy your situation. You've come to understand that truth, right? Now, all of that truth together, the person of Christ, the standards of God's law, the truth about myself, all of that comes together to be the truth, the body of truth, which is the gospel that we have embraced. And that truth then has set us free. That's the second promise. Not only will we continue in his word, well, the third promise, actually, since we're going back to verse 31, not only will we continue in his word, but we will know the truth. And here's a precious promise. That truth will set us free. Now, it should be obvious to us that the freedom, once again, that Jesus is talking about is not a political freedom or a national freedom or a physical freedom. There are people who heard Jesus' words even in this day, and they believed it, and yet they were not politically free, were they? No, they weren't. They were under the subject, they were subject to Rome. There are people today who live in oppressive regimes who have come to know Christ and been genuinely radically saved, and yet they're not politically free, are they? No, they're not. There are men who are incarcerated in prisons who come to know Christ and are genuinely, radically transformed and saved. But are they free? No, they're still incarcerated. So this verse has nothing to do whatsoever about national or political freedom or physical freedom. What does it refer to? It refers to freedom from sin. That's why Jesus clarifies in verse 34, they thought he was talking about national freedom. We're Abraham's sins. We've never been enslaved to anybody. That's the most ludicrous statement that ever came off the lips of a Jew. We've never been enslaved to anybody. Their whole history was one of slavery. But they make this bold claim. We've never been enslaved to anybody. They thought he was talking about national freedom. And Jesus clarifies it. I'm not talking about national freedom. The one who sins is a slave of sin. So Jesus is talking about spiritual freedom. So now I ask you this, Christian. Have you been set free from sin? Have you truly been set free from sin? If you are a Christian, you have been. You are free. So this is one of the marks that we can use to examine ourselves. Do I still live in dominate, under the domination and domineering elements of my sin? Am I a slave to my flesh? Am I a slave to my passions? Am I a slave to my desires? Am I still in bondage to all of the iniquity and trespasses and fleshly desires of my sinful nature? Am I still in slavery to those things? Or do I know, because I have experienced it, that I have been liberated from all of that slavery? Do you still sin? Are you still a slave to sin? When sin barks out its orders, do you still jump like you used to? Do you still do what sin demands that you do, tells you to do? Or do you know that you have been set free? The mark of a believer is this. He does not live under the dominion of sin. Does that mean the believers don't ever sin? Of course not. Sin is for us a daily reality. But listen, it doesn't mean this. A true believer does not jump into sin, dive into sin, plot sin, swim in sin, and enjoy sin. As believers, when we fall into sin, we feel horrible about it because we have sinned against our master. We've sinned against our Lord. And we repurpose to repent of that and to be obedient. We confess it, we acknowledge it, and we move on. That's how believers handle it. That's what it means to be set free from sin. doesn't mean we never sin. 
But it does mean, it doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it does mean this, that I no longer am serving sin as my master. I am no longer a slave to it. Sometimes the fleshly nature barks out a command and I go back into my default mode, which I lived in for 14 years, and I jump at its command and do what it tells me to do. And then I feel horrible about it. And I get right back out of it and I climb out of it and I don't want anything to do with that anymore. Doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it means this. I know I am a free man. I know I am a free man because I have been set free from sin. Does that describe you? Or are you the type of person that Scripture describes as one who is always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth? As one whose God is your belly, you know things intellectually, you know the stove is hot, you know Christ is real, but you've never really been radically transformed by it. And today, you can sit here and honestly say it in all that I've heard and all that I've listened and all that I've learned. I know that I'm not a free man or a free woman because I still serve sin and it is my master and I love it and I enjoy it. That is the mark that you are a false believer if you still live under sin's dominion. So have you been set free? If you're a Christian, think of all the things that you have been set free from. You have been set free from sin, its power, its dominion, its demands. You've also been set free from the wrath of God and his condemnation. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As a believer, you are free from judgment. You will never see the frown of God. When you stand before Christ, you will see nothing but his delight and his pleasure in you because, not because you are great, but because his son was great on your behalf. And because the righteousness of his son is yours. And so God is forever and will be forever pleased with you. Never any condemnation. Never any judgment for your sin. Because all of your sins, past, present, and future, put on the person of his son. And all of his gleaming, a gleaming, a blemishless righteousness was placed upon you. And so you'll never be under the wrath or the condemnation of God. Because you are freely and forever forgiven. Salvation. Justified. And the imputed righteousness of Christ is now yours. So you're free from condemnation. You're also free from the devil. He once was your father. You realize that. He once was your enemy. You once loved everything he told you to do. And you once did it joyfully and gleefully. All the while thinking that you were a free man or a free woman. But you weren't. You were as in bondage as anybody could ever be to slave to the slavery of sin. You're also free from the fear of death. There was once a time when you were you feared death. And the devil who had the power of the sting of death was your enemy and he was over you, but now that freedom and or that fear has been taken away and now you and I are free from the fear of death. We're free from the world. We're free from sin. We're free from judgment. We're free from hell. We're free from the devil. We're free from all of that. That's a glorious freedom, is it not? The child of God, the true disciple, is one who continues in his word, who knows the truth, and has been set free by that truth. Now there are a couple of implications from all of this, and I'll give you these three as we wrap all of this together. There are a few implications. I don't want you to miss them. The first one is this. Follow me. If Jesus is the one who sets us free from sin, and the instrument that he uses to set us free from sin is truth, then that necessarily means that everybody who has not come to faith in Christ and been liberated by the truth is a slave. There are only two classifications of humanity. Slaves to sin and servants of Christ. Slaves to sin and servants to Christ. This is offensive because people who are slaves to sin don't like to be called slaves of sin. People who are slaves to sin love to promote and advance their own freedom. I'm not a slave. I can give this up anytime I want. I can quit anytime I want. I'm actually in control of all of my iniquities and all of my sins and all of my lusts and I can abandon them at my own free will anytime that I want. There are only two classes of humanity those who have been set free by Christ and serve Him, and those who are slaves of sin. 
If you're not a Christian, you are in bondage to total dominion of sin and Satan and self. It is not possible for somebody to not be a Christian and to not be enslaved to sin. If you haven't been set free by Christ, you are still a sin. That means that all men are born sinners. Now this is, by the way, is what the Jews object to, right? When Jesus said you'll be set free, what do they object to? <laughs> are you calling us slaves? They don't like that. People who are slaves to sin don't like to be called slaves to sin. The second implication is this. In order to be, uh, the freedom that you and I enjoy is not something that you and I have done on our own. Freedom from sin does not come to the person who wills it, or the person who runs for it, or the person who works for it, or the person who chooses it by their own free will, as if such a thing exists. How can you read this passage and walk away thinking that there is such a thing as libertarian free will? There's not. We are free to choose, but I'll tell you what we do choose. We choose the place of our sin, the time of our sin, the amount of our sin, who we sin with, and the level of our sin. But all we ever choose is sin. That's where free will gets us. There's no such thing as free will. We are in bondage to sin. Before you were delivered by Christ, you were a slave of sin. And there is nothing that you did to set yourself free from that. You must be set free from somebody else, That is, or by somebody else. That is the grace of God. And you and I are the passive recipients of the Lord drawing us to himself, changing our affections, changing our will, changing the direction of our eyes, causing us to look to Christ, making Christ precious to us, and using the truth of his word to deliver us and set us free from sin. Not only are we all slaves, but we do not set ourselves free. And that, in fact, is the, the message in the whole context of the next three verses. But there's a third implication, it is this. You and I ought not to forget how precious it is to be free. If you've been a believer for a long period of time, sometimes it's easy for us to forget what slavery was like. Right? Do you remember what it was like to serve your lusts and your passions? Maybe as a Christian, you're not acting like a free man or a free woman. You're not living like a free man or a free woman or somebody who's been set free. Or maybe as a Christian, you have been free and you have enjoyed salvation and the sanctifying grace of God for so long that you now have forgot what it is like to really be in bondage. And you have lost your appreciation, your true appreciation for the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. Just as the children of Israel were to never forget the bondage of Egypt, you and I should never forget the pains of our old taskmaster, Satan and sin and slavery to self. We ought to look back on that and say, that is what I have been liberated from. He has set me free from that. I don't have to go back to that. I ought to cherish that precious promise and that precious reality that now I am a free man. Yesterday, for me, as I shared in the announcements, was a great opportunity for me to reflect upon that because I remembered at the camp, I was there with the guy who was there when when everything went... I, I, I was interviewed yesterday as one of the memories for camp because we're putting together this little video thing. And the guy that interviewed me asked me, uh, how has camp affected your life? So I gave my testimony. And in my testimony, I said this. There was a time, I remember the place I was when I trusted Christ. And I remember when, it, and obviously not the year, but I remember it was in the evening where it was at, who was with me. I remember everything about that room. I took in every detail of that room, and I remember it because it was as if in a moment all of life went from black and white to technicolor with surround sound. All of a sudden, in an instant, I understood everything. It was like a light had been turned on, and I went from darkness to light. And you don't forget that. When all of a sudden you are spiritually made new, and you know that, and you realize that, suddenly you realize everything has just gone from black and white to technicolor. That's what it is to be set free. And it's good to go back and reflect once upon a t- uh, uh, reflect upon what life was like once upon a time when it was black and white. And you felt the pains of your time in Egypt. Never forget how precious of a truth it is that you have been set free. And listen, young person, if you trusted Christ young, you ought to be thankful that God spared you 
from realizing just how horrible of a taskmaster you had. If you got saved when you were young, you ought to cherish the fact that God never allowed you to experience the full expression of your depravity and to know in full the pains of serving sin and self and Satan. You can glorify God for that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for the deliverance that we have received in Christ, all by your grace and all by your goodness to us. You saw us, you loved us, you chose us, you sent your Son to die at a cross for us, and then you drew us to yourself and redeemed us, gave us faith to believe, granted us repentance, gave us the right affections for Christ, made him precious to us, changed our nature, and caused us to believe upon you. Thank you for doing all of that and bringing us, your people, to a knowledge of the truth. We thank you for that deliverance. God, keep it precious in our minds of just what you have done for us in Christ, just what it means to us, and all of the precious realities that we now enjoy, which we do not glory for ourselves, but which we give glory to you for all of those things. It is in Christ's name that we do so. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.